Thank you, guys. You know, ever since our early days at Cincinnati Country Day, and even back when we met in uh, people's homes, when Horizon was just a gathering in people's homes, uh, we were always about life change. Helping wherever you were in your spiritual journey, whether you were nowhere in your spiritual journey or starting it or a longtime veteran, we wanted to help produce life change. And we felt like if we could create serving environments and equipping environments and exploring environments and connecting environments, that people would just come and build friendships and God would uh, you know, comfortably connect them to a higher purpose. So today I'd like you to hear a story of uh, a life change that's occurred here over the last five years together. Can we give a, a warm welcome to my friend Michael? Michael, come on up. So Michael and I are neighbors, and Michael's been attending uh, Horizon for about five years. And uh, tell me a little about your spiritual background, what initially brought you to Horizon. Well, we came to Horizon when it uh, opened this location. And um, one, I guess, first impact was the bulletin, where I saw that they were advertising the trip to Belize. And having recently completed my uh, training to become an anesthesiologist, and the fact they were looking for anesthesiologists, I said, if this isn't you know, calling, then... You know, this is where I need to do or what, what I need to do. And did you grow up going to church and uh, going to, a, you know, a Protestant type church? or? I grew up Catholic and uh-huh. attended church uh, most Sundays. And uh-huh. I'm kind of in the middle teen years when you start making your own decisions. I think that kind of faded into the background. Mm-hmm. Um, and I reignited my uh, faith journey probably during and slightly after medical school when I moved here to Cincinnati and tried yeah. to find a spiritual home. So you've been here for about five years, and meanwhile, one of the environments that really has grabbed your heart over the last five years has been our, our serving environment uh, far in, uh, in Belize. So tell me um, a little bit about that, the God moments you experienced along the way and why that even term God moment was a little weird for you. Well, having never left the country uh, and to taking that first step to go on my first mission trip back in uh, 2013, um, I was a little bit concerned because not having been out of the country, but not only that, but practicing anesthesia in a third world country, not having your support network that you're used to. Uh, one of the biggest fears was I would come across a challenge that I didn't have the solution for. Mm-hmm. Um, so I almost didn't go on the trip. But after some prodding by uh, John Kirby and my wife, I actually ended up going. And one of the, I, wouldn't, I guess I would say a little bit uncomfortable portions was after each day coming back to the hotel, we would kind of sit in a group and talk about God moments. And I would listen to people tell stories, and I really didn't have anything to add because I really didn't have any true God moment where the clouds parted, thunderclap. Mm-hmm. So I just kind of got through the first mission trip, and I felt good at what I was able to contribute using my knowledge and skills, meeting a lot of great people, making long-lasting relationships. Um, but that's kind of where I left it. Yeah. And the second year, you sort of stumbled across something you thought, well, this might be one of those things. So, I mean, talk about, you know, not missing uh, a God moment. I didn't think it would be something that, you know, trickle in. Um, a lot of people have met uh, Gabriel Jochi. I met him back in 2013. Um, his mom brought him in for a cleft palate repair. And, you know, just looking at him, you could look at some of his uh, features, and he scared me a little bit. Mm-hmm. Not doing a lot of pediatric anesthesia, there was just something there that wasn't right. Mm-hmm. Um, nonetheless, he needed to have surgery. Um, so he came to the operating room, and I was working with uh, one of my uh, resident anesthesiologists. We put the uh, anesthesia on him to help him breathe him uh, off to sleep while we placed an IV, so we'd give him additional medications for surgery. Um, so once the IV was in, I pushed the medications um, in an attempt to place a breathing tube, and my resident says, well, I can't open his mouth. 
looking at the kid. His jaw was clenched tight. I said, well, that's not good. Um, I gave him an additional dose of anesthesia and pulled back the um, sheet that was covering him to keep him warm. And his whole body was rigid. He was tensed up, Mm. his arms tight, fists balled up, legs extended, back arched. And, you know, I began the cold sweats because there's not many things in the anesthesia world that present this way. Yeah. Um, and if it truly was what they would call malignant hyperthermia, the end course is death, hmm. um, especially if you don't have the antidote. So um, there's probably about 20 or 30 people in the room looking at me for the answers at this point. And I asked if we have the dantrolene. They haven't had it because it's an expensive medication. We didn't have it. Hmm. Um, they didn't have any of the um, laboratory tests necessary. So my, my only p- potential outcome for this was either this kid dies if it's truly malignant hyperthermia, we pack them in ice and drive them an hour to a hospital that may have this medication. Mm. So, I mean, you really... And this is like your worst fear that you've talked about. I didn't want to go because of this very thing, and now you're face-to-face with it. So, yeah, I mean, people are looking at you. You're watching this kid who's potentially going to die right in front of you. Um, so you just kind of close your eyes and pray and say, God, if I've met my end. I've done all that I know to do, so I leave this on you. Please don't let this boy die. Yeah. So... Um, we turn off the anesthesia, and about after 15 minutes, his muscles start to relax, and he begins to cry, which is a, um, a load off my mind sure. at that point. Um, needless to say, that was close enough for me. Um, went back to the hotel, um, went directly to the room, and, and cried myself to sleep. Um, one, because the kid almost died, but uh, two, because the kid didn't die. Hmm. And that was the profound God moment that I realized when you talked a couple months ago about the different facets of God where you have... Um, Ad and I, or God is the boss, you only realize it when you give up control. Yeah. Um, so that was my profound God moment, and it made me realize that that first year where I thought about, look what I brought to this trip, look what I did, I realized that it wasn't about that at all. It's about uh, what God has done through me and uh, through the rest of the people. And it really has kind of changed my outlook, not only uh, for the trip, but in how I live daily life. And you could have said, all right, well, hey, we gave our best. I already gave vacation time up. I came down here to help. The kids you know, can't be doing it. But you really felt like God was calling you to spend years of your life investing and in trying to get him the help he needed, couldn't afford. Tell us a little summary of, of that process and why you felt God was calling you to that. Well, I mean, it, was, it would have been easier for me to sit there and tell mom. And I did tell mom. I said he should never have surgery uh, here in Belize. He should have surgery where they have the anesthesia staff, medications, ICUs, and all the other stuff to do it safely. And I could have walked away, but I mean, I don't think God put Gilberto in my life to walk away. Yeah. Never having actually gone knocking door to door on hospitals and saying, hey, can you do the surgery for free? Um, I just couldn't ignore it. So uh, with the help of Pastor Kirby, um, I found a surgeon and an anesthesia team that would do the surgery. They directed me to the international services at the shrine. And we were about 90% of the way there. We'd gotten visas and passports for the family um, arranged. We were just waiting on a, a surgical date. But one of the side conversations I was having with the anesthesia team saying, well, I had a number of years to think about this. If this wasn't malignant hyperthermia, then maybe related to his you know, underlying disease process, maybe this is a myotonic reaction. So the minute I start discussing this, the trail went cold because mm-hmm. the next email I got, um, they were willing to take care of it when they knew it was going to be malignant hyperthermia. Simple. Mm-hmm. Uh, but when it actually turned out to be something more involved, they're like, well, the email said, I'm sorry, after going to the highest levels of administration, we don't feel that we have the resources to adequately take care of Gilberto. Yeah. Um, so I felt like that door was slammed shut. And, and you, uh, could, you could have given up there, but you still felt like God's saying, I'm supposed to help this kid. I, I called Pastor Kirby because that's all I needed to do at the time. 
and I read him the email, and after a moment of silence, he goes, Mike, I think, I think we just need to take a moment and pray on this. Um, and like I said, I, I just, there's nothing else that I could do at that point, so we prayed, and then John, through his um, multitude of connections that he's made over the years, um, called in some favors from Children's Hospital, and the next thing you knew, uh, the facial plastics department and the nursing coordinator there really rolled out the red carpet and said, if you can get them here, we'll take care of everything. And then a number of people in the church have donated their time, money, clothing, food, uh, their home um, for Gil Barito and his family. Yeah, they were actually here sitting, uh, I think, 1110 service, but halfway back. And, and so what happened when here in February after four years of your work, three years of your work? Three I met years. him in 2013, and he had a surgery uh, mid-February 2016. Yeah. Um, he came here, uh, had a multiple, a multitude of workup. I mean, he really had every test thrown at him, a genetic workup. He saw the surgeons, uh, saw the spine specialist because he has a quite pronounced uh, scoliosis deformity, um, ENT surgeons, anesthesia, um, multiple x-rays. He had his uh, echocardiogram to look at his heart function. Hmm. Um, and ultimately, the anesthetic plan was formed um, based on what we saw in Belize, and they did it safely. And, wow. Um, he made it through surgery, and the family is That's awesome. very happy and excited, and Gilberto's doing wonderful. That is awesome. Well, last question before I let you go. If you look back over not only how God's impacted you, but I know you've actually invited other residents in your department who may or may not be religious to come and sort of share in this experience. Tell me a little bit how that's impacted you and your whole, uh, your whole team. I've brought uh, one to two anesthesia residents in their final year of training with me, and I explained to them before they even go, I said, yes, you're going there to do anesthesia. You're very confident in what you do. But the goal in going on this trip is not to do the anesthesia, is to experience, go in with an open mind, open mm-hmm. ears and open heart, uh, and feel what it means to be part of this mission. Um, and last thing then, too, you told me that there's only three main hospitals in Belize. 300,000 people in the country, and they didn't have a working defibrillator. They didn't have EKGs, and because of our team's desire to be generous to the whole country, we've actually, through multiple people, supplied for the first time ever that country EKGs and, and defibrillators. Is, is that right? Defibrillators. Defibrillators, yeah. It's amazing. You can go there and, you know, for several years, the surgical team, you know, we saw the defibrillators in the operating room, but a couple of years ago when I was teaching um, basic life support to the medical staff, and say, and then when you get your defibrillator, I know you have them, um, that's when you would apply this. They say, well, those don't work. You know, there's big boat anchors. They had them, they just didn't work. Two of the three hospitals had defibrillators, none of which worked, so it was almost pointless at that point. Um, So it really is, you know, with the generosity of, you know, people from this church and outside donating, you know, money and these uh, medical equipment, life-saving devices, you know, they've changed the outcome of... Entire country. Entire country. Yeah, that's awesome. Can we thank Michael for his story this morning? Thank you, Michael. Appreciate it. Thanks for your work. Well, one of the reasons we are so passionate about uh, creating environments for people to give here, near, and far is, is we don't think we're smart enough to funnel all your giving and we know what to do with it. We think that if we can expose all of us to uh, needy here, near, and far, your entrepreneurial spirit, your connections will go, oh my goodness, i got to be part of this. And God will do something in your heart and God will change the world as you begin to put yourself in an environment and just be open to what God might do. Our church has always been about that. What if each one of us just would give a little bit to change the world for him? Let's listen. You know, it is amazing when you start giving and serving somebody else, how you become aware of how you used to think you were pretty generous, but now, oh my goodness, I didn't realize I was capable of this much more. 
did a wedding last night, and I was talking with the bride and the groom, and I said, the thing about marriage is, you come into marriage thinking you're basically a good person, and then you find out about a year into marriage that you are basically a good person, as long as you get what you want. Then you start finding just how self-centered you are, and you realize that years into marriage, you realize how much sacrifice you're capable of, how much adapting you're capable of, how much sacrificing your own priorities for somebody else you're capable of. And you look back and go, oh man, I didn't realize how self-centered I was back then, but this experience, this relationship, this time period has helped me grow in such a way that it was hard, it was challenging, but I've changed a lot over the years. That's certainly true, you know, having a son just turned seven who's a special needs, I uh, had an opportunity, other way, had an opportunity to, uh, just over the last seven years, I would have said I was a pretty generous person, I was a pretty selfless person, marriage certainly brought a lot of you know, stuff that's in me that I didn't realize was there, and certainly having a child with special needs has gone, oh my goodness, I thought I knew how to sacrifice seven years ago. Whew, I've really learned how to be more selfless with my time and energy now than I was back then. And... Today in Book by Book, we're going to look at a prophet by the name of Amos, not a well-traveled one, but a powerful message. And his message is going to help each one of us, because it's going to help us realize that right now we might be blind to some things. You ever known somebody who's blind to something in your life? I mean, like they really don't get, they really don't see what's right in front of them. For example, how many of you realize I changed shirts between songs? Oh, I changed shirts, I had a yellow shirt on before. See, there's something in which we can miss the details that are right in front of us. And what Amos is going to address is he says that serving other people, caring for other people, can change you and shape you in profound ways. He said, and here's the issue that he wants to address. An issue that if you and I can get this, if you and I can address this, if you and I can figure this out in our lives, then what's going to happen is that we are going to save ourselves an awful lot of pain, we are going to experience an awful lot of joy because we all know people who don't know they're control freaks. We know people who don't know they're worry warts. We know people who don't know they're insensitive, don't know they're disrespectful, and the whole time you're saying, how can you not see that, right? In fact, as you think about those categories, you probably think of your mother-in-law or your sister-in-law or maybe your spouse And yet what really is keeping that person from seeing the problem is something the Bible calls pride. And pride, what what Amos is going to describe is that pride is like a carbon monoxide of the soul. And the issue with pride is that it's colorless, it's odorless, and you just slowly fall asleep to it. It's very unique from any other area you might struggle with because it's so hidden, because it's so behind the scenes, because it's invisible. I mean, no one goes to the bank account, sticks in their ATM card and goes, huh, where did that $40,000 come from? Oh, that's right, I embezzled that last week from the company. Nobody wakes up in bed, you're not my wife. Oh, that's right, I'm committing adultery. You're not surprised by adultery. You don't get surprised by by thievery. But I'm telling you, I have never, if you talk to a pastoral staff, 
Never have we heard anyone ever come into the office saying, Whew, I need some help. Oh, with what? My pride. Not, not one time. Why? Because it's the carbon monoxide of the soul. It's released out of our lives in such a way. And what it does is that pride blinds us. Now, how does it bl- blind us? How does it put blinders on us that we cannot see what's happening right in front of us? Because everyone around us can see it. Everyone around us can see the problem. They're saying, how does he not know? How does she not know? How can they not see the problem here? And here's the problem with being arrogant and proud and opinionated. You don't learn from your mistakes. Proud people repeat the same mistake over and over and over again. Why? They can't learn from their mistakes because they filter out feedback that disagrees what they already thought about themselves. Two, if you struggle with arrogance, you take yourself way too seriously. Humble people can laugh at themselves. Oh my goodness, I probably messed up there. Oh, I'm so sorry. Let me work on that. Proud people are like, you made a fool out of me. I can't believe the way you said it. You take yourself real seriously. And because you take yourself so seriously, you can't hear feedback So you keep making the same mistakes over and over again because you don't listen well, you don't learn well, and you don't laugh well. And the net result of that is that you're wearing blinders and don't even know it. This carbon monoxide of the soul is coming out of you and you're breathing it back in and it's blinding you to that reality. The second thing that pride does is that it grows. It starts off with a little burst. And if you don't begin to detect it, it gets bigger and it magnifies and it breathes. It breeds a sense of superiority in your life. In fact, the Bible says that the worst possible wrongdoing is pride. Because it is at the root of every other one. If you're angry or resentful, for example, did you know that's really because of pride? Sure is for me. When I'm mad at somebody, you know why I'm mad? Because they shouldn't have treated me like this. I don't deserve... I can say that in my mind. I don't deserve to be treated like that. And my pride feeds my anger. My pride feeds my resentment because I say, you know the reason I'm mad at my brother-in-law, my uncle, my sister, my mom is because I would never have done to her what she did to me. I wouldn't have forgotten to send that thank you letter. I wouldn't have forgotten to do that. And because I wouldn't have done that, I have the right to be resentful for what they did or didn't do. See, it breathes. It grows. Worry. You know why many of us shake our fist at God? Either because we're mad at how he's allowed something to happen or not allowed something to happen. I want to propose to you, it might be pride. See, worry says, I know how life should work. It doesn't seem like it's working that way. So I'm going to worry about my plan that doesn't line up with whatever God's plan is. And underneath your worry is actually a sense of pride. And certainly when we're opinionated, it's true. But I want to ask make you think too about maybe fear has it its root pride why is it so hard for many of us to say we're sorry i'm just not good at that my family didn't do that probably not probably because your family had a lot of arrogance in it and maybe you could be the one to break that pattern because i don't want to say i'm sorry because i don't want to feel foolish i fear taking too big of a risk. And so it might be time for your company or in your relationship to take a step out and you're so scared of, of being uh, looking foolish that you don't take appropriate risks. 
And that's why pride, if we can get the message of Amos, Amos is going to show us how we can actually address the carbon monoxide of our soul in such a way that we can serve others, care for others, invest in other people, and we're going to be healthier because of it. I remember my mom, she was a vice president of a large company in Illinois, and uh, four vice presidents, uh, three actually, she was one of the three, then an executive vice president, and then the, the president. Well, the executive vice president, Bill, was the president's brother. And he was not competent in almost any way. So the whole company was always having to work around his blind spots, work around his arrogance, work around everything was always about him in every meeting. I never met him before. I heard a few stories around the dinner table until we had a, a gathering as a, fa- as a uh, company. They had a company party. So we came to the company party. They had a clown there named Chuckles, and he was making balloons and, and doing face painting. Then we went out to the volleyball court. Now, we play a lot of, vo- a lot of volleyball in my family. We actually had a sand volleyball court in my backyard growing up, and we had a regular volleyball court. So we had two courts going in my backyard. My sister got a full ride scholarship. My dad played. My mom played. I played. So we're not the best volleyball players, but we're pretty good. We step out in the volleyball court, and up walks the executive vice president. You ever met somebody who's so, so, so bad, and they don't know it? He walks out there like he's God's gift of volleyball, and he's throwing himself around, cannot pass, hit, spike, or anything appropriately. He's stepping on people, barging into them, hurting people, just totally oblivious. I mean, I am waiting for my dad to give me a set so I can blast him right in the face. And my mama assured me that that is not appropriate behavior for a 10th grader uh, to your mom's boss. We came home that night and we just talked about how did he not get how bad he was at volleyball? How did he not get how unapproachable he was? How is that guy so clueless? And we deal with frustration with humor in our family, so we wrote a poem. It was actually a two-page poem uh, about Bill, uh, which we did not share with him, uh, which I'd recommend. Uh, but one of the lines I remember, this many years later, was something like this. As for volleyball, what can I say except that Chuckles wasn't the only clown there that day? And then I thought, oh, wow, I'm doing the same thing. I'm arrogantly judging Bill. I'm blind to my own sense of superiority by writing a poem about what an idiot he was. What is wrong with all of us? See, pride blinds us, but pride also breathes a sense of superiority in us. So how do we detect it? Well, how do you detect any carbon monoxide? You've got to get a detector. And Amos offers three detectors in your life that will allow you to pick up where proud, arrogant, unteachable attitudes are just starting to spew out before they magnify, before you become blind to it. The first detector he gives us is he says, detector number one, you need to learn how to align your senses. How do you smell arrogance when it just begins to creep into your stories? How do you begin to see it? In your behavior, how do you begin to notice when you're moving in that direction? Think of it like a carbon monoxide detector. You've got to learn where it is and what it smells like and how to stop it, how to detect it. Because if you can detect it early, then you're going to save yourself a lot of pain when you can smell what it looks like, when you can taste what it looks like. And so Amos takes the first chapter and he says to like five different groups, The same exact thing. Amos chapter 1. He says, for three transgressions, no for four, punishment in the fire is coming. 
He says, if you don't learn how to smell the smoke when the three things happen, you're going to miss the fire that occurs with the fourth. And what he does is he turns to all the surrounding countries. He says, Damascus, for three transgressions, even four, punishment's coming and a fire is coming upon you. And he turns and says the exact same thing to another place called Tyre. For three transgressions, even four, punishment is coming and even a fire. And it's interesting that he does this because Amos is talking not to any of these groups. He's talking to Israel. Why does he address these other people? He says, these people, your next door neighbor countries, they're blind and arrogant, are they? Oh, they sure are. I was so glad when the fire came and burned down that place or burned out that village because they deserved it. And they should have seen it coming. The three different signs of the bad things they were doing, they're so oblivious to it, they're so blind to it, and finally the fourth one got them. They didn't learn how to smell the smoke, and therefore they got caught in the fire. Now, if you look at a map, you start seeing why he is talking about these areas. He basically takes Israel in the center of a bullseye, and he addresses all the areas around Israel. He says, isn't Damascus blind to their pride? Oh, yeah, and a fire came. Wasn't Tyre blind to their pride? Yeah, fire came. Amnon, Moab, Edom, Judah, Gaza. If everyone around you is blind to their pride, maybe you're blind to yours. No. I'm going to get the CD from this sermon. I'm going to give this to somebody. I got somebody who needs to hear this because it's not me. And this is what Amos is doing. He's saying if everyone around you is blind to three or four things, if they haven't aligned their senses to smell the smoke, maybe you need to learn to align your senses to smell the smoke so you can avoid the fire. And then he says, specifically in Israel, there's three things. He gives all three. Here's three ways there's currently smoke going on in your life, and you're ignoring it. He says, number one in Israel right now, the wealthy are ignoring the poor. And not even maliciously, just what do you do if, if you're... You vacation and live with people like you sociologically. If you don't go out of your way to get out of your insulated life to go to other places, you're going to miss out on the poor and needy around us. He said, number one, the wealthy are ignoring the poor. Two, they were actually selling the poor into slavery. And then when the poor tried to go to court to get a case to free themselves, they would use their power to deny them legal rights. To which, again, I say, thank goodness I'm not like those people. Well, just think of the categories there. How you use your money, how you use your influence, and how you use your power. Those are three good ways to align your senses. Do you use your money to give to other people? Or primarily is your money about enhancing your own kingdom? How do you use your influence? Do you use your influence to build other people up, tell stories about what other people are doing, or really all your stories about what an incredible person you are? How do you use your power? Do you use your power in networks to lift somebody else up who can never give you something in return like Gilberto? Or do you give when somebody else is going to give you something back? One of the ways we align our senses is we begin to check out how we use our money, how we use our power, how we use our influence. Because we don't want to be blind. We want to be like, I'm starting to smell like I'm heading toward that. Now you probably don't have this, but we have a family who's very divided about politics and religion. All your families probably agree on politics and religion, right? So family gatherings are always exciting. They're always exciting because the two sides of the family seem to always disagree with each other. And so one person on one side of the family is just very, very 
opinionated and you know the problem in the world are the conservatives the problem in the world are the republicans the problem are and don't you guys dare talk about your faith or church or or any of that while we're at the family gathering and so as everybody's sort of walking on, on eggshells hey yeah, what have you been up to well yeah we went and caught butterflies out by the church don't mention church it's just a location i'm talking about location and so that person Eight years ago, after sort of giving me speech for years about what's inappropriate, is, is passing out Obama buttons, <laughs> Obama bumper stickers at a family reunion. Okay. Then, as soon as they leave, the other side of the family is like, you know what, that is so wrong, that is so... And then they're launching into a big spiel about why CNN's the problem and MSNBC's the problem and, and why if we could just watch the new 2016 Dinesh uh, movie, we'd all be you know, saved or whatever. And what's amazing is these two relatives that look so opposite politically, so opposite religiously, have the same basic problem. Arrogance. They don't listen. They're blind. The other side is always the problem. They don't smell the arrogance. They can't smell the lack of teachability. They have not aligned their senses to the problem. Harvard Business Review did a uh, research study recently and they're following a product crash of a president of a consumer division named Charles Armstrong, and things did not go well. And this guy was incredibly strategic, incredibly creative, and just an up-and-coming leader. And why this product launch didn't work was just a mystery. Until they discovered that one of his character flaws was in his brilliance, he did not realize that he did not invite or create an environment to invite other people to collaborate. And that resulted in poor communication, which resulted in a poor product launch, which resulted in a huge problem for the company, to which he almost lost his job. As they dug into it, here's what his boss said caused the problem. He couldn't smell the smoke. I was just like Charles when I was his age, but I was a director, not a division president. See, it's easier to make mistakes and learn when you aren't in such a big chair. I want him to succeed. I think he could make a great CEO one day. But sometimes he puts me at risk. Look at this line. He's too sure of himself to listen. One of the ways you can align your senses to pride and arrogance is ask yourself, how well do you listen to people who disagree with you? And we need to move on. That's a really hard question to think about there. How well do you listen to your spouse when they bring up something you disagree with? Are you quick to say, yeah, but that's not really what happened? Or do you really listen? When your kids say something you disagree with, how well are you to really engage and understand where they're coming from before you rebuttal it? How about your parents? How often did we listen to our own parents? Or did we know why those rules were stupid. Did we know better than them how to rule their own home or their own house? Oh, see, it's in all of us. So part of aligning our senses is learning how to smell the smoke before the fire comes. The second thing Amos mentions is that another thing we could do to align our senses is we need to learn how to listen for the snap of the trap. See, the thing about arrogance is arrogance will eventually put you in a trap you will eventually lose something you care about because of arrogance. It might be a marriage. 
It might be a job. And you walk away from that and go, oh, those people don't understand. Oh, my goodness, I married the wrong person. And so I'm going to swap houses and swap spouses because obviously they were the problem, not me. Right? So there will eventually be a snap of the trap where there will be some way in which something you care about gets caught in the trap. And you're like, oh, how did I get here? How did I miss this? But usually before we step into the big traps, there are several snap of the traps that we just missed. Because we look back and we go, how did I miss that pattern? How did I miss that situation? Why didn't I hear what my wife was saying five years ago, three years ago, two years ago? I hadn't aligned my senses to the snap of the trap to go, whoa, whoa, I need to check into this. Amos says, guys, a bird, when he gets, a bird gets caught in a snare or a trap, he needs to think about what he stepped into. In fact, snares don't spring up out of the earth, right? No, a trap goes off because something was caught in it. And so if you start seeing close calls in your life, it might be time to listen and say, well, is there something in here that I'm doing inappropriate risks or or I'm not real sensitive to the way in which I'm hurting the people I care about? The writer of a book called Talk Like Ted gives six things that you can use in your own life to check for arrogance. Now, I've been thinking a lot about these this week. Seven, rather. Seven ways in which you might have traps going off around you and you've ignored the sound. Number one, do you drop names out of context? I'm always shocked at my own insecurity. I, I know you don't struggle with this. I'm always amazed at a party how I will inappropriately mention something that was irrelevant to the conversation because in some way I thought it made me look better. The snap of the trap. Why am I doing that? How's your eye contact? I'm often shocked in my rush to get stuff done that the people I work with, I rush on by and don't even remember to say hi. Or they're talking to me and I'm looking at them sort of, but I'm actually looking behind them at the person I really need to talk to. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And I do the, you know, mm-hmm, keep talk, talk faster because I want this to be over, right? I know you don't do this, but this is what I do. It's another, it's a snap of the trap. Or sometimes I do that with the people I say I love and live with. I come home and, and, and I rush off to get something done and I don't take time to actually interact and look in, in their eyes and, and, and connect with these people that I, I say I love and I, 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 apparently I'm the father of. Snap of the trap. How's my eye contact? Do I use condescending phrases and put-downs? Those people, what an idiot. I cannot believe... You know, more morons like that. But I'm good at that. Might be some traps going off around you. Do I assume that I earned everything I have? There's a sense of entitlement. And that everyone who's poor, it's not because they were born in a poor country and have no access. No, they're all lazy and unmotivated. Now, there are lazy and unmotivated people. I've, I've worked in Atlanta. I've worked in Chicago with some of the poorest of the poor. There is a lazy, unmotivated group. But when you begin to think everybody's that way and everything you got was from your own sense of entitlement and hard work that had nothing to do with other people who gave you opportunities, there's traps going on all around you. You need to align your senses to that. If you think you have an answer for everything, it might be time to call God up and tell him he can have a day off and you can just fill in for him because you know everything. (laughs) If you have spouses and kids who tell you that you think you know everything, it might be time to stop ignoring that and hear that as a trap that's snapping around you. Are you always wanting up upping the other person? 
Man, I can be guilty of this as a storyteller. You get around with a group of friends and, oh, man, did I tell you about uh, last year for, for our anniversary we went to such and such? That's nothing. Did I say that? What we did for our anniversary is, you know the most hilarious thing happened? That's nothing. Let me tell you what happened to me. In fact, even in Dilbert, there's a character called Topper, right? Because he's always trying to top somebody. In fact, when we catch ourselves doing that as a family, we always go for a downer. So we'll catch each other going, oh, yeah, well, let me tell you what happened to me. What happened to me? And I'll always, if I can do it, I can try and catch it. And somebody tells a story, they top each other and say, you know what, let me tell you what happened to me. I once took a dump at Denny's. <laughs> so every time as a family, somebody goes by Denny's, we take a picture of Denny's and we text it to each other in our family. Just to remind ourselves, don't always top. You can bottom as well and stay humble. I didn't tell that at 10 o'clock. I thought you guys could handle it. The, uh, the last one on this list is when you're blaming other people. And you have a tendency to blame other people for what you do. And man, that is, again, humble people adjust their life to the light of truth. Proud people adjust the light to their life. And they filter out any feedback that doesn't reinforce their preconceived idea about themselves. They blame situations. They blame circumstances. How can we align our senses to hear pride Smell arrogance. Hear the snap of the trap before we step in it. Detector number two is interesting because Amos goes on to say we not only need to align our senses, we also need to align our sense. There's something in which money, unlike anything else in our life, will tell you where your priorities are. Money, like almost nothing else in your life, will tell you your priorities, will tell you how others focused you are, will tell you whether or not you're, you're about serving yourself or others. There's something about money that allows you to align your senses and your sense to discover what really prioritizes your heart. And I think whenever you talk about money, people get a little nervous. And one of the reasons we get nervous is because we know in one sense how true that is. Our priorities are always shaped and always shown by where we spend and what we spend on. And yet many of us think, oh, you know, this is just a pastor or a church or a religious person trying to get something from me. But Amos turns to the people and says, God doesn't want something from you. He, he, ultimately, he owns the universe. He, he's not lacking in funds. But God wants something not from you, he wants something for you. And what happens is when you go on a trip, when you give up vacation time, when you start giving percentages of your income or percentages of your time in service to others, what you discover, what you find out is that God has something for you. He wants to invite you into a greater vision, into a greater purpose, into a greater chapter of serving and generosity. You'd say, I'm never going to spend three years of my life to help some kid I don't know in Belize get a million-dollar surgery given to them by a hospital. Right. And then God calls you to that. And you go, what else could I have done the last three years that would be a better use of my time? To change a life. And in the midst of changing a life, God changed me. So God turns to the people through Amos and says, I want you to align your sense. I want you to bring your sacrifices every morning. And your sacrifice was your money. That was your lamb. That was your goat. You literally were going through your inventory and, and taking a piece of that and bringing it to God. Every morning, it was a daily practice. 
I want you to bring your tithe every three days. A tithe was a 10%. Notice he says that you need to do that every three days. Why? There's something about regular, habitual giving of a percentage of your income that aligns your heart to God. It aligns your heart to other people. Here's, I think, why God uses a percentage versus just give 20 bucks or 100 bucks or 1,000 bucks. When you give a percentage of your income away, it's a percentage of X, right? 5% of X. And when you start giving at a, at a percentage level, it reminds you of the X. This is 5% of everything God's given me. And the difference between tipping God or tipping other people versus giving percentaging is something about percentage giving reminds you of how much you have to be thankful for. Go on one of our mission trips. Go down to Happy Church. If you want to do one nearby, go to Cancun. And what you're going to do is the minute you go there, you're going to see people who are so happy with nothing. And you're going to say, I complain about everything. They are happier with nothing than I am with everything. And you're going to realize that God has something for you. He wants to fill your heart, not with the discontentment and the never enough and always upgrading of our culture. He wants to fill your heart with thanksgiving. And Amos turns to these people and says, when you begin to habitually give of your money, habitually give percentages of your time in your checkbook, here's what's going to happen. You're going to offer a sacrifice. Go back. Offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving. You're going to have thanksgiving in your heart. And then you're going to get to the place you say, not only am I giving a percentage of my income, a tithe, I want to set another amount of money aside for free will offerings. So Beth and I are doing this this time of year. So just last week I took my tithe that I give to the church, for example, and I increased that by another 10%. Then we have another fund we set up that we just use for in case God directs us to help out with something. For years we used that fund and turned into our adoption fund for our son initially. And so right now, we talked last night, what's the thing God might be calling us above our tithe to, to be helping, to be part of? Who's the Gilberto that God might be calling us to? That's helpful, I think, to understand for us as a church. Where we, again, we don't think we're smart enough to funnel all your giving through here for the church and then we tell you where it goes. As I mentioned last week, we've got a $3.3 million budget. It's about 3,000 people attend. We've got about $1,000 per person operating cost. So certainly giving to the church is one of God's priorities is, is certainly important. But we think of ourselves as an inspirational, educational center to create environments where God might put you in a place where you say, hey, I want to give to help the church inspire me and educate me, but I really want to see where in the world God might want to use me in a significant way. What's the grander vision God has for me? To discover that God, look at this last line, that God loves you, you children of Israel. God's doing this not because he wants to get in your pockets and take something from you, he wants something for you. John Wesley was an entrepreneur. He turned out to be the father of modern Methodism and became just a, a great communicator of, of, of God in, in the world, really, but certainly in America. But as an entrepreneur, he was making 1,400 pounds a year in his day, the equivalent of 300,000. But he disciplined himself to live on 30 pounds a year, making 1,400 for years, but he only lived on 30 so that he could give away 98% of his income. What a fool. <laughs> or maybe he knows something. What does he know? Well, he has a great phrase that I love. He says, here is my philosophy of money. You've got to gain all you can. I love that entrepreneurship spirit. You've got to gain all you can. Then you save all you can, because who knows what might happen. 
and you give all you can. That was how he aligned himself to make sure his money was speaking toward humility, was speaking toward other people in his life. So, two detectors. How do we align our senses? How do we align our sense? And then lastly, what aspect of our life, what's God doing? Why would God, in the middle of this talk on pride, why would Amos be addressing this issue of of money? Well, here's why. God knows something about money. He knows that where your heart is, so your treasure will be also. And God wants you and I to treasure him. And so what happens is the reason he wants to talk about money is because he says, your money will tell you what you treasure. And so I want to help you figure out what you treasure and find out what are the treasures in your life that you are depending on, that you are counting on. And I want you to treasure me. Because when you learn to treasure me, something powerful is going to happen inside your heart. Is you're going to start finding joy and peace and purpose in ways you haven't before. And that's what I want you to experience. I want you to learn how to treasure me. He says, and because you're treasuring other things that are breeding pride or discontentment, I'm trying to parent you guys in different ways. One city, I just poured out rain onto it in hopes that my blessings would say, wow, we've got to treasure God. He gives us so much. But those people didn't return to me, despite everything I gave to them. Another group of people, I said, no more rain for them. Let's let them experience the consequences of their actions. That didn't work either. It's classic psychology, right, or parenting. It's the stick or the carrot. He said, no matter what parenting technique I used, you didn't return to me. You kept living for yourself. I want you to seek me and live. I want you to experience the treasure of finding contentment and purpose and meaning. Seek me and live. I want the best kind of life for you as your heart is lined up with your treasure and your treasure is lined up with your heart. He said, but you're not doing that. You're not finding that. He said, in fact, something far worse is happening. And I love this part of Amos because Amos gets pretty sarcastic and pretty, uh, pretty mean, actually. Uh, speaking on behalf of God, but it speaks to why many of us were out of church for so long. God says that he designed faith to be a mirror. And as a mirror, what he wanted is he wanted, he wanted when we read the Bible and we go to church to look in the mirror and say, oh, wow, I've got some areas in my life I need to work on. And it brings humility into our life. That, that we would look into the mirror and say, God, because you love me, because of your grace, because of your care, because of your love for me, God, I need some forgiveness for the way I treated my spouse, the way I ignored my employees, the the neglect or the the insensitivity I had to my spouse, or I need to go apologize to what I did to my kids the other day. And, And the Bible should act, or was designed to act, or God's relationship was designed to act as a mirror to show us the areas in which we have problems that should develop humility in us, and that humility should result... And us saying, God, I need your help. God, I, I am not living this thing out the way I hoped I would. Sadly, instead of the people looking in the mirror and saying, God, you're right. We've been arrogant. We've missed it. We're spending our money in a way to glorify ourselves, not help the broken. They were instead using their faith not to uncover their pride, but to cover up their pride. I don't know if you ever used to watch the Jetsons. I used to watch the Jetsons all the time. And every time the lady on the Jetsons had a phone call on her video phone conference, she had this 
stick with a picture of himself looking good in the morning. It's like before FaceTime, right? And and so you go, oh my goodness, I can't take a FaceTime or a Skype call because I look horrible. But what Judy Jetson would do is she had a picture of herself looking good and she'd hold it up. And so she would look good even though she didn't look good. And this is what happens with religion many times. Instead of faith exposing who we are so we can find forgiveness and admit to God what's broken in us, faith becomes, religion becomes something we pretend to be something we're not. Apparently that's exactly what the people are doing. Because Amos shows up and says, God has some words to describe your religious activity. So they have some religious activity. So he's talking to religious people. And God says, when I think of your worship time on Saturdays, when I think of your gathering and your singing together, I hate your gatherings. I despise your religious activities. To which maybe you're going, I don't feel so bad. God's on my side. I'm also turned off by organized religion. God's like, oh my goodness. First of all, it's not real organized. I hate, I despise your feast days. I don't savor your sacred assemblies. Though you're, and look, they're giving. Though you offer me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I'm not even going to accept them. Because they are you pretending to be generous when the way you're living your life is very self-centered. So don't pretend to use your religious activity to cover up what's really going on in your heart. I'm not going to fall for it. In fact, when you sing songs, he says, take your songs away from me. It's like Simon Cowell. When I hear you sing your worship songs, it's like the worst melody I've ever heard in my life. And that's pretty strong, isn't it? How could these people be so blind that God hated their religious activity? Well, that's why God offers a solution. And here's where the book of Amos really sort of ends with this crescendo. He says, you need to put one more detector in your life. And that detector is this. Everyone needs a plumb line. A plumb line is the thing by which you measure your life. You measure how you spend. You measure how you give. You measure how you serve. You measure your priorities and decisions. We all need a plumb line. Now, if you've never used a plumb line before, the people in those days had built a wall, and that wall was getting increasingly crooked. But they didn't know it. They these leaning tower piece of walls they're building. And so Amos shows up and puts a plumb line down and says, I want you to look. Look, here's plumb. This is straight up and down. Your wall is crooked. In fact, your whole life is crooked. And so God turns to Amos and says, Amos, this is the role I want you to play. I want you to be a plumb line. He says, what is this, Amos? And Amos says, a plumb line. That's right. I want you to be the plumb line for my people. And I want you to evaluate them based on three Ps. Ask them the percentage of their life that they're giving away. Are they progressively becoming more like uh, God and compassionate and serving? Are they giving to my priorities? These three P's become a plumb line. I remember early on in my marriage, I discovered something very, very important. I should never hang wallpaper with my wife. We had this old 1940s house and everything was crooked. The floor was off, the roof was off, beautiful house, it was all off. So we're trying to hang wallpaper. It's like, where do you line this thing up? If you lie at the bottom, the whole thing leans this way. If you lie at the side, it all leans this way. This side leans this way. We needed a plumb line. What a plumb line does is you take a plumb, you hook it up to a string, and this tells you where straight up and down is. 
We live in a culture today that if you align your attitudes to what our culture does, you're going to be complaining all the time. Or you're going to be cynical all the time. Or you're going to be like it's never enough all the time. God comes into our life and says, let me be your plumb line. Because if, if you will let me show you what plumb is, I'm going to teach you that the best life comes from serving others. The best life comes from giving to others. There's a way in which you can find thankfulness in your life, love in your life, compassion in your life, not by demanding your own way in arrogance, but by way of self-sacrifice. Thinking, that can't be plumb. God's like, yeah, that's plumb. And God says, if you will use this 3P plumb line in your own heart, you can evaluate yourself. What are God's priorities? How do those reflect my checkbook and my calendar? Am I giving percentages of my money and time away? And you can show yourself where plum is. Am I becoming progressively more generous? Progressively more teachable? And God will work that into your life. So I want to end the service this way. Because I think we're, we're such busy people. We don't have time to reflect and we'll walk out and go, that was a good sermon and not think about it. So let me take just two or three minutes and let's just ask God to be our plumb line. I'll lead us in a time of prayer. And maybe if you want to just pray to God and ask him some of these questions this morning and and ask what plum is in your life as well. Let's pray. Maybe you want to start off and say, God, open my eyes to the possibility that I might be proud. God, help me detect self-centeredness in myself. God, will you align me? Align me to the best kind of life. Will you give me a greater purpose? A grander vision for my life? Maybe you want to, for a moment, just sort of mentally display your, your bank accounts in your head and just ask God. Say, God, do your priorities show up in my priorities? Think about your calendar. God, as I look over my last month or year, Am I prioritizing my marriage? Am I prioritizing my kids? Am I honoring and caring for my father and mother? God, am I looking for ways to serve people who cannot serve me in return? Maybe that last P of becoming progressively. You want to say, God... I realize I have an anger problem. Could you help me be progressively more self-controlled? I need access to you. God, I realize I have a control issue. Could you show me what Michael discovered today about you being our Adonai and Master? God, make us into a community. A community of people who are honest and real about what we struggle with, the messes we make. And God, in the midst of all that, we ask that you would align us to live the kind of life that's filled with joy and love and peace and gentleness and self-control. That in all these things, 
you would get the credit for our lives. And it would be about helping others, not helping ourselves. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you for being here today. Sorry we went long. I'll talk to the pastor. He just really had a problem today. Um, If you came prepared to give us some offering boxes on your way out, and if you uh, are new to the church, we'd love to say hi. Third door on your left is the hearth room. We'd love to put a name to the face. Thanks again.